we are in the growth stages. I'm really pleased to see everything that crypto and all these decentralized technologies are doing because they're proving that you can actually put the power in the hands of the individual and they're forcing the hand. You know, I think they're accelerating regulators and policymakers by a decade by doing that. This is what we stay up uh, late at night around specific questions. For example, you know, what is going to happen to people's privacy? What is going to happen to people's transaction data, their, their control? You know, how user-centric are the systems going to be? And this is exactly what is being worked out. You know, it happens internally. It happens externally. These are the kinds of things that we are very interested and, and motivated and driven to kind of sort. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hi, everyone. I'm Sheila Warren, and welcome to this week's Money Reimagined. It's finally 2021, the year we were all promised. And I should surprise exactly nobody. Even though the calendar has turned, the world remains on a wild ride. Will crypto prices keep soaring? How will regulators respond? Will COVID-19 keep mutating? And how long exactly will it be until we're all vaccinated and can see each other in person? We could easily run a multi-episode arc addressing these questions, but instead we're going back today to fundamentals. As the prices of Bitcoin, ETH, and several altcoins continue to rise to new heights, Behooves us to ask, what is crypto for? And even more importantly, who is it for? Beyond being an elegant computational exercise and a way to make a very small percentage of the population extremely rich, what exactly is the point of crypto? For me, the most exciting thing about crypto is its potential to be at least a partial fix to the problems of exclusion that plague our financial system. Even listening closely to this show, you'll have noticed that so much about reimagining money isn't really about the money at all. It's about many of the systems and complexities that surround it. We've spoken in previous episodes about you know, de-risking, digital entity, and the innovation that we're seeing all over the world. You've heard about things like Know Your Customer Rules and the Bank Secrecy Act, and the ways crypto is revolutionizing capital, liquidity, and debt markets in Africa, China, and Latin America. I can certainly attest to how challenging these rules are in certain geographies and for smaller organizations. A decade ago, I was building a product called NGO Source, which focused on moving philanthropic money across borders. Now, for a U.S. resident, donating money to U.S. charities is not particularly challenging. You send funds, you get a receipt, you write the amount off your taxes, or not, and you call it a day. But donating money across a border is extraordinarily complicated, regardless of the reason. Basically, non-U.S. organizations need to prove in certain circumstances that they meet the organizational and operational requirements of U.S. charities. This is why, as one example, after a natural disaster, you see funds pour into American relief organizations rather than going directly to local institutions that may actually be better situated to triage and respond. So let's think about that for a minute. What are the consequences of this admittedly well-intentioned rule? Well, simply put, U.S. priorities for what makes an effective and legitimate charitable organization have become standardized over a large part of the globe. And in fact, many countries have literally adopted our charitable laws as their own, even where the fit isn't quite right. So the concept of a philanthropic industrial complex really isn't at all far-fetched. 
the system has created a situation in which the desire for risk reduction and operational ease has led to the ham-handed infusion of cultural norms of charity and fueled the creation of an entire industry. Foreign organizations that meet the requirements of U.S. law often attract more donations than those that don't. And as a result, smaller grassroots organizations are either cut out of the flow or have to pay fees to an intermediate organization to receive and handle funds for them. It's hardly an environment for bottom-up activism or grassroots innovation. Could the same thing happen with crypto? It certainly could, especially if we see global adoption of one country's regulatory regime. We could see, or I would argue continue to see, huge swaths of the world's population simply excluded or forced to rely on rent-seeking middlemen to manage their access. Today, we're going to focus on one of the most touted but least understood potential uses of crypto, financial inclusion. Globally, 1.7 billion adults are unbanked. There could be potential for crypto in conjunction with other innovations to address this exclusion, but it's going to take addressing some of the major barriers to accessing financial services, including a lack of formal identification and a lack of verifiable credit history to do so. These are long-standing challenges and ones that have seen a lot of activity in recent years particularly from those building on a long history of international development and humanitarian efforts around the world. We'll be exploring these topics with two more excellent guests in this episode. We'll be talking to Matthew Davey, who is the Chief Strategy Officer of Kiva. At Kiva, Matthew focuses on long-term strategic initiatives to help drive systemic financial inclusion for the world's most vulnerable populations. Prior to Kiva, Matthew worked in the big data entertainment and gaming sectors. We'll also be joined by Alton Sheff, Senior Technologist of Blockchain at Mercy Corps. Alton has an extensive background in international development with a PhD in the subject from MIT and prior experience with the World Bank. Both our guests have extensive experience with blockchain and among their other appointments, they and their organizations have been involved with the DM Association, formerly known as the Libra Association, from its early days. Before we greet our guests, let's say hello to my co-host, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hi, Sheila. Nice to have a switch around here and until you give the lead in, I get to sit back and relax as you, uh, <laughs> as you let us in. 2021, exactly. <laughs> new paradigms. So a lot of things have changed in this year. I mean, we certainly have seen, like as I noted, the prices of crypto are just going up and up and up and up. We've got these new regulations that have come down, you know, FinCEN, OCC notice. Uh, we're kind of in part two of a lockdown in parts of the world. There's a possible transfer of power to the Democratic Party and the US government. I mean, what are you uh, flagging and highlighting as we start this new year? Yeah, we took a, a hiatus, of course, for Money Reimagined. And, and in fact, you know, Coindesk sort of tried to wind down for the year and our, our coverage, but uh, the world decided that that wasn't such a great idea. <laughs> the Bitcoin price has just been crazy. That's kept us very, very busy. But yeah, all of this regulatory action all jammed in at the end of the year. Both you mentioned the two key ones, the guidance from FinCEN on hosted wallets, and then this OCC ruling on stablecoins. I actually think there's an interesting connection between the two that made me that are not necessarily in isolation, but that's for another episode. But that's really, I mean, this big moment, institutions are buying into crypto, buying into Bitcoin, and regulations are potentially being geared toward their presence, which brings us back to some of the stuff we've discussed in previous uh, episodes as well about, and, and is that in fact very relevant today. It's like, who is this for, right? Is this for Wall Street or is it for the 1.7 billion unbanked? Is it for the regular person? You know, what is crypto for? So I think that the events of the past few weeks have really brought this into highlight. Yeah, you know, I think it was Jill Carlson who said in a previous episode, you know, speculation is not a use case, right? And so I really think that some of these rules are forcing us to wrestle with what exactly is our intention around crypto and, and is that intention uh, something around financial inclusion and about really building a better system that will serve more people. 
So, you know, I'm a little curious to hear from you before I turn to our guest. I'm sure you, as I, thought of these issues well before crypto was even a thing, well before Bitcoin. When did financial inclusion pop up on your radar as a big issue? Yeah, two things I think in parallel. I spent six years in Argentina. A lot happened when I was there, but it wasn't just about Argentina. My wife at the time was doing her research as an anthropologist into immigrant communities living in the outskirts of, of Buenos Aires, all marginalized, living very much in the informal economy. And I remember two things, right? There was the M-Pesa story had suddenly taken charge. This is really before the white paper was out. So this is 2006, 2007. That was suddenly becoming this big issue in Kenya. And I was sort of starting to get to learn a little bit about the Bolivian migrants living in these slums around Buenos Aires. And there was a place called Charrua. This is one street in an otherwise large community of largely Bolivian slum dwellers. And this one street had restaurants and buildings and a school and a whole lot of institutions. And we learned that this was because a particular activist within the community had fought tooth and nail with the Buenos Aires government to have property ownership recognized in that street. And so the game had changed in this one little pocket of an otherwise big place because of the fact that people had something to do with identity and ownership and rights and access and inclusion built around this very basic notion of, of a legal framework. And so everyone else was outside of that, was excluded from participating in the economy. That sense that you know, we build these systems, these laws, these structures that make a huge difference if they are in place and a huge difference for those who, who don't have it uh, when they're not in place was very starkly clear at that moment. And then, as I said, that kind of came at the same time that there was this, well, we could even, it's not just property rights, but it's also money itself and access to payments and access to bank accounts. And the M-Pesa story that was emerging at that time really got me thinking hard about it. And in fact, a guy came to me with a startup and said, hey, could we do something like M-Pesa in Argentina? And we actually explored this idea. I had no idea what Bitcoin was at that point. In fact, I think it was still a twinkle in Satoshi's eye. It all happened in Argentina changed my life. Yeah. You know, I think a lot of us have an origin story around these issues that, that is, it explains to some extent why Bitcoin and crypto were attractive, you know, when, when we saw this lack of access. So for me, it was just, it was as simple as trying to get money to a village in India that I'd visited when I was doing thesis research when I was an undergraduate and just realizing that I wanted the tax deduction on that, you know, for a variety of reasons, mostly because I didn't have, really have a lot of money <laughs> at the time. And it was almost, it was impossible. I couldn't figure out how to do it. And I, you know, in retrospect, I realized I just didn't have the sophisticated to understand what the mechanisms were to do that in a way where I could achieve a tax deductible status. But just this, the fees simply on moving this relatively small amount of money, what, you know, if I'd given it while I was in India living there, it would have been one thing. But then when I moved to the United States and tried to get that same amount of money over to that same uh, charitable organization, it just, the fees were staggering. I mean, the extra rent that I had to pay on that was quite daunting. And so I realized that, you know, a lot of donative money, particularly when you think about um, diaspora giving, you think about how remittances, like all this kind of thing, I got very interested in all of that. Um, but I want to turn to our guests and Matthew, you know, we'll start with you. Uh, certainly both of you, you know, have, I'm sure a fascinating origin story. I'd love to hear about you and when kind of financial inclusion as a major issue came up on your radar. Uh, but also hoping you can tell us about the Kiva protocol. You know, you, you Kiva is building, as, as you say, the credit bureau of the future. And we'd love to understand that and how you see the Kiva protocol addressing these issues of financial inclusion. Thanks for having me. It's always great to talk about this stuff. So first, in terms of kind of my origin story on financial inclusion, you know, I've always been very interested in helping those who have less, and I've been blessed to have plenty of opportunity. 
And, and really when you see it manifest in my career is after I had kids, really, and it's kind of the cliche of you want to leave a better planet behind for your kids than the one that you were able to enjoy. And really, that's when I made a shift from being just in the technology space and doing a lot of stuff with emerging technology to looking at how do I do that for something that's actually going to have that level of social impact. And an opportunity arose to come Kiva, which is a, a multinational nonprofit that does micro lending in 92 countries around the world and has done so for 15 years, was looking at how can we look at the systemic problems causing financial exclusion and preventing people from entering the formal financial sector? And what are possible technology and policy solutions for that? And so I really came in from the technology side into my career in financial inclusion. Coming on to Kiva Protocol really quickly, that started about three years ago. I mean, that, that was the first project I took on when I joined Kiva as chief strategy officer a little over three years ago, was taking a look at, and you were talking about earlier, both of you, Sheila, the systemic challenges, the fact that well, there's 1.7 billion unbanked adults. That's a third of the world's adult population. Most of these people are making less than $10 a day. And you look at Kiva and all of Kiva's historic operations and everything we've done with the lending, hugely powerful. But there's so many stories and anecdotes from the field of individuals who can go so far in the informal sector and they're still blocked out of the formal financial sector. And this was really the first problem that I was tasked with and we, we had the entire team looking at was, What's preventing people from on-ramping into the formal financial sector? Why can't Nancy, who has a perfect 10-year borrow history through Kiva's field partners and has borrowed and repaid $15,000, why can't she get a $15,000 home loan from the local bank? When you distill that down, it comes back to a lot of the challenges you've already discussed. I know you had a podcast with Brian Bellendorf. We're using a lot of the Linux Foundation technology, but the problem of verifiable identity and know your customer checks and anti-money laundering and countering the financing of terrorism. There's a gap between the informal sector and the formal sector, and you can't build the bridge without figuring out how to solve that problem between the informal and formal sector. So we came at this from the system side saying, we need verifiable identity. How do we do that? And not how do we do that today? Like how do I get people a better piece of paper? The future is digital. So how do we get digital identity at national scale to everyone? How do we make it fast, secure, and very importantly, cheap? A KYC check in Sierra Leone before Kiva Protocol cost $1.40 US. That's too expensive. It's fine for most of us in the United States. Most of the United States, $35 for a KYC check is fine. For an unbanked customer outside of Freetown, Sierra Leone, they can't pay the $1.40. It takes two weeks and most of them don't have the documentation. After putting in a system like Kiva Protocol, the stats in Sierra Leone are staggering. It's a couple pennies, about three cents is the cost for a KYC check. It takes 11 seconds and you need literally your thumbprint and to know your national ID number. And you actually don't have to know your national ID number. That's just to reduce the search space for the biometric matching. You could do it with just a fingerprint and you, you tend to not lose your fingerprints as opposed to losing documentation. So that's kind of my origin story on the technology side, but that led us to then decentralized ledger technology and cryptocurrencies. Let's bring Alpin here. I mean, Matthew, I think that was fascinating. What I really like about the story you just told is that it just gets to this very practical function. You described the cost of KYC into something as straightforward as that being the ultimate barrier that we're trying to get through. But Alpin, you and I met when we were at MIT. And before we go into you know what Mr. Core is up to right now, I want to just kind of segue to a conversation about the Economic Space Agency. And the reason why I think this is important is because you know Sheila in her monologue talked about this problem of kind of a monolithic architecture to charity, this philanthropic industrial complex that is really led by the US. It harks back to the themes that we keep on hitting in Money Reimagined, which is a lot about the dollar itself being this sort of old centralizing concept. And what we're 
really talking about here is the capacity to empower people at the local level in the informal economies that Matthew was talking about, where people at the grassroots are empowered to do their own thing. And one of the things I was fascinated by about the Economic Space Agency, which people should Google and check out, the EXA group, was this notion that through crypto, you could spin up these communities that would have their own value structures, and that that is the empowering part of this technology. If you could talk a little bit about that concept as well and how it plays into what you're doing now and what Mercy Corps is doing to sort of, again, really enforce that empowerment at the local level. Thank you, Michael. I think when we met was around the time that I was first learning about smart contracts and cryptocurrencies. To just dial back a little bit, some of my sort of interest and origin story around financial inclusion starts with work I did in Haiti prior to the earthquake, so around 2008 where in the aftermath of the earthquake, what we saw was a massive failure of top-down approaches, both from the government, but also from what Sheila just described as this philanthropic industrial complex, which just flew in and very clearly funneled billions of dollars into various relief efforts, but which did not build any additional resilience at the community level, at the, even the national level. And actually, that, I think, was a, a turning point for me, because what I noticed, unfortunately, was not only was there a, a massive casualty or tragedy around the number of lives lost, which was upwards of 200,000 people, which is massive for such a small country, but at the same time, the erasure of 25, 30-plus years of development work and again, without the actual foresight of having had a sustainable mechanism to develop capacity, to have something that was resilient, whether it's in the form of human capital or institutions, and in fact has motivated a lot of my work since then around the topic of risk, risk management, disaster risk, which is what I was studying at MIT when we met. And it comes back down to this point around what are we building that's actually useful to people and can kind of expand and amplify social relationships, community level, individual level capabilities, as opposed to investing more and more in kind of externalized infrastructure or institutions. The thing that really jumped out at me when I learned about smart contracts and Ethereum, and then you know, at some point later on around Bitcoin, was just how innovative and impressive it was that this was a technology that bakes ownership into the structure. It's kind of implicit in the ways in which smart contracts operate and the ways that cryptocurrencies operate. And they bake in through that potentially distributed form of ownership that could amplify the power and the voices of people that are excluded. And I'll just come back to Mercy Corps and why I actually was so excited to join the, the organization, which is that what we're noticing is that, you know, the unbanked is just too broad of a category to really comprehend, right? It has to be broken down. There's a very substantial gender inequality around whether it's device ownership, around uh, participation in the economy, around the effects of different kinds of shocks like disasters. And that has to be kind of taken into account. And then when you go into specific types of people, whether they're refugees, whether they're smallholder farmers, whether they're youth that are under unemployed or others, what we're finding is that people are just stuck beneath layers and layers of intermediaries to just do basic activities. And this is where Mercy Corps has actually been trying to innovate in, I would say, over the last few decades 
in all of the work that we do, we work across 40 countries. We work in some of the most difficult contexts, quote unquote. That includes places like Afghanistan, Lebanon. Uh, we work in Colombia, Nepal, Nigeria. And the goal, the stated goal of the organization is really help people build more secure, productive, and just communities. And a lot of that work originated in emergency and disaster response. So that's pretty much, I would say, at the core of what Mercy Corps still does. About 54% of the money that we distribute goes towards direct humanitarian relief. Sometimes it's basically the monthly stipend that covers households' expenses when they're refugees or living in refugee settlements and things like that. We've expanded to do quite a few other sets of activities, working with smallholder farmers, working with folks that are trying to start new enterprises and in their communities and beyond. But I'd say that just coming back to the point around EXA and kind of new forms of value, what's very promising is that we have the potential to see something of a paradigm shift in the way we think about value, the way we think about money, and the way people access and connect with each other in those ways. It's heartening to see people who built their careers and really shifted and focused on the problems of exclusion and inclusion in our society and specifically understand that these are systemic problems and that they are global problems. A lot of the systems, as Michael noted, and as we've discussed on the show many times, you know, do come from the dominance of certain global economies in the overall system. And, and the export, for many reasons, many of which have to do with soft power and other reasons, cultural reasons, all these different things, I think, are quite important to acknowledge. And so, you know, one threshold question really is, I, I liked your point, Alvin, about the unbanked as this kind of like gigantic, you know, category. It's a very easy to sort of imagine that that is a monolithic group when in fact it is far from. Um, and is the goal really to get unbanked folks, you know, into the banking system, right? With all of the attendant biases and issues that we know that that system can often have. The reality is when you do get somebody who's always going to be a smaller customer into that system, you know, they aren't given that kind of attention. They are grouped. There are kind of assessments. Maybe you think about this with insurance. There are assessments made on certain swaths of the population that certainly do not apply on a micro level, but do apply to the kind of broader group. And the same thing, of course, happens with banking and financial services. So as a threshold matter, is that the goal? And should that be the goal? And then when you've answered that question, I'll go to you first, Matthew. You know, how can crypto help with that? Should we be imagining kind of an option where we have a parallel system that's really kind of off bank, if you will, that has on-ramped into the system, but really can kind of function independently? And what would the advantages and disadvantages be of that? Take the second question first of like the, the two systems and there, should there be an adjacent system? I actually think one of the more powerful things that this offers the opportunity of is reducing the cost and the burden to be able to serve currently unbanked customers. That right now, I don't want to fault the entire banking sector. It's very complicated. There's a lot of really, really good things and a lot of things that make it very hard to serve those who it doesn't serve. Yeah. And so I actually would hope to see the future of crypto be something that is very closely integrated with the next evolution of the financial sector. I think the financial sector right now and the formal financial sector is evolving. I think it's been constantly evolving. You know, 40 years ago, there was a big uproar moving from checks to credit cards and then ATMs instead of like all along, there's been evolutions of that sector. And I think one of the last ones that's left is saying some of the way we do stuff, we're doing it that way shielded behind policy and regulatory issues. 
And we can still satisfy all of those policy and regulatory issues doing it quite differently. And I think we're going to see an evolution. I, I look at what's going on over the past decade in cryptocurrency and especially over the past three years. And I think you're going to see this great reconciliation where it could be that people are first served just by crypto and maybe it feels like it's an adjacency. But again, if you can make the cost of compliance very low and make it easy to move that on. And you know, we don't even have the discussion about self-hosted wallets now, but I do think you can move the point of a compliance all the way down to somebody's SIM card on their phone. I think you start to see how this entire movement is not about creating something adjacent. It's about extending the existing perimeter. And some people use cash, some will use crypto, some will use credit cards, a whole variety of methods of doing these things. In terms of your question, which I'm taking second, my opinion is that there's so many good things in the formal financial sector. There's consumer protection, there's anti-money laundering. There's the fact that I put $2 in and I know that that $2, what its value is going to be. And if it's backstopped by something else, I know that. And I know that it's not being lent to finance terrorism. Those things are very good. And I think we're seeing how do we extend the financial sector to be able to do those things in a way that doesn't exclude people. So I do believe that the goal of all of this should be extending the perimeter of the formal financial sector as it evolves and get to completeness. I'd love to see a future where the formal financial sector can equitably serve everybody. Because if we build two systems, we will always have a stepchild system. Either it will lack inclusion or it will lack consumer protection. I'd love to have our cake and eat it too. And I think that crypto is showing us like in this reconciliation that's going on right now. I mean, you can even look at the Anti-Money Laundering Act of 2020, which was buried in the Defense Reauthorization Act that just did the Congress override. Like you look in there, the first two lines are entirely about inclusion and how that's hard for nonprofits to send money from the US somewhere else. Yeah. I think we're seeing this reckoning now, which I think is very good for saying in that future financial sector, we should try to get everybody into that. On that question, I think what comes to mind is around the time of the last crypto boom in 2017, I have this quote from Vitalik saying that people need to differentiate between getting hundreds of billions of dollars of digital paper wealth sloshing around and actually achieving something meaningful for society. And I think that it's interesting because a lot of people within the space do see that the system can be used and leveraged in a way that can increase inclusivity, create a new paradigm for uh, financial systems. And honestly, that's, that's one of the motivators for me for having joined uh, Mercy Corps. We actually just launched an initiative called FinEx, which is actually designed to specifically look at how do technologies like cryptocurrency, whether they're CBDCs, whether they're directly pure crypto, blockchain actually benefit people. And what we're realizing is we don't actually have enough evidence for that right now. We have to be really honest that you know, there's a lot of people saying that there will be benefits, whether it's inclusion or there'll be income generation, et cetera. But when you look at it on the ground, we just aren't necessarily seeing that traction or we haven't seen it being measured in, a, in an objective way. That's partly some of what, what concerned me you know, early, in my early days. I, I worked with a company called EtherRisk, which was using smart contracts for insurance. And, you know, we designed quite a bit and, and it's still, I think, very promising to use smart contracts for insurance. But when we look on the ground, we're not really seeing those use cases play out. We're not seeing them being scaled and we're not really seeing, you know, how they compare in terms of welfare benefits. And so I think that when it comes down to well, this concept of financial inclusion, 
it requires a little bit more rigor and kind of honesty around what will actually be beneficial to people on the ground when it ultimately reaches them. Well, you know, one way I think about it is like last mile crypto. What will it look like? Like, what, what does that actually require for it to actually have meaning for people? And ultimately, when it comes down to the question of financial inclusion, you know, it means different things to different people. Honestly, I agree with this sentiment, Sheila, that is inclusion or financial inclusion in the system enough? What we know from a lot of RCT work and impact evaluation is that just onboarding people onto an account or some kind of savings mechanism is not really sufficient. People you know, sit on those accounts, they can lay dormant. And then you have another set of arguments about how a lot of people are living day to day with not enough money to actually put in and save and accumulate because they need that money for food or for various requirements. And so it's important for us to think about like, well, what do people really need when we're talking about the poor and the unbanked? And I think that the promise is that beyond just the ability to open an account is the ability to access a whole range of other functions without a lot of those intermediaries and at such a low cost, potentially uh, via you know, smart contract software, for example. And this is some of what we're testing out. So in, you know, over the next few months and this year, we're actually conducting a range of pilots specifically testing these kinds of things in places like Kenya and Colombia and, and looking at, well, is there a substantial difference or not? And what is it? And how does that actually affect the experience for those people that we're talking about? Matthew, in some respects, you, know, you really, I don't know, willingly or otherwise, took a position and I think it's a very interesting one, that it's not really about like, you know, throwing out the banking sector and the regulatory complex that's around that and sort of going all out into this sort of wild west, ignore the rules and we'll figure it out on our own perspective. It's actually about making those regs much easier to comply with. So it's kind of like reg tech and driving down the cost of compliance. I think at the end of the day, again, to the point we raised at the very beginning, that's all that matters. Like, However you get there, if you can make it cheaper and easier for people to participate, that's all that matters. But what's, I think, important is that right now, that regulatory framework is established for a whole set of reasons that are quite different, really, from the needs of, of the poor. It has a lot to do with American hegemonic power. Right. You know, we've just seen, you know, this interesting parallel new regulations, the OCC's ruling allowing banks to use public blockchain stablecoins really potentially very empowering in terms of lowering the cost of moving money around the world, which could really benefit the poor. But it's also being tied in with potentially stricter FinCEN rules. You've mentioned them on, on self-hosted wallets, which could tie in a whole bunch of new on and off ramp rules, which I think could probably have as much to do with America trying to hang on to the surveillance structure that it currently has for containing China, for containing Iran, for containing Russia. And this alternative motive that is all about geopolitics and, and, and everything else ends up imposing massive costs on how that system works, which is our costs paid precisely by the 1.7 billion people that we're talking about right now. So how do we marry those two, right? Isn't in some respect the opportunity to say, okay, let's find a way to get around that because it is just not working. Or is it, let's see how we can work with what they've got and figure out all this fascinating reg tech stuff you're talking about. I mean, it strikes me as that, that, you know, we could be naive almost to think that we can fix that. On the other hand, we could be naive to imagine that you can go around it. 
Yeah. I mean, you, and you, you're right. I did kind of softly take a position, but I, I think it's easy when you're talking about crypto and, and especially technology innovation to look at legacy stuff only through the negative lens and to miss all of the positives that come with it. All of the, you know, there's a lens on it of like, this is, you know, those in power trying to exert that power and influence around the world for all the reasons you just mentioned. But the flip side of that, the reason there is a, also a very standard altruistic reason of, I want to make sure that Matthew's money doesn't vaporize out of the account. I want to make sure no one's manipulating my currency, except for me, if I choose to do that. Like there's a whole bunch of actually very positives that come with it. That's why I think there's this reckoning. You, know, you can look back at music and look when music went from kind of analog and you bought a CD. I, I consider CDs still analog. You, you would buy the physical CD to, to MP3s and digital. And I'm not saying the Digital Millennium Copyright Act was good, but it took a long time to figure out how do we take music licensing and music rights and making sure the artists are getting paid and the labels and all of this with the individual's desire to hold it on, on your device, on, on you know, back then MP3 players, now you know, on, the, on your phone. I think we're going through it. And I hate to make that music analogy because it has a lot of bitter taste for everybody, but like it was a very complex kind of, you know, legal slash regulatory and public and private sector interaction. And I think you see the same thing here. Again, I don't think the rules as are set out today, nor do I think the proposals we're seeing today are the end product that make it to that point where I'm like, yes, the financial sector will be able to extend the perimeter and reach everyone. I think we are in the growth stages. I'm really pleased to see everything that crypto and all these decentralized technologies are doing because they're proving that you can actually put the power in the hands of the individual and they're forcing the hand, you know, I think they're accelerating regulators and policymakers by a decade by doing that. Now, I think at the end of the day, though, the best thing for the consumer is getting both of those, getting this technology solution. But I would say maybe even more important than that is the evolution of the regulatory and policy framework to make that actually work, to bring those consumer protections, to bring that access to multiple products and services, to make it so that a stable coin actually can be regulated to stay stable, all of those things. And I know for pure diehard crypto folks, that's not the line they want to hear. I will say, if you're a pure diehard crypto folk who want to see the inclusion, like believe fully in wanting to realize that vision, I've been on the ground a lot. I've looked at this a lot. Like I'm relatively, absolutely convinced. Relatively, absolutely. <laughs> I like it. You can quote me on yeah. that. It, it really, I think, comes down a lot to unintended consequences. You know, so even the, the charitable laws I was talking about at the beginning, you know, there, there are very good reasons why, you know, it is not uh, super easy. It, it was not super easy for me as a college student, you know, write a check over to a, a charity in India that had not been through vetting apart from my own estimation. Like there, there are reasons why that is helpful and that matters and that is protective actually of, of you know, U.S. citizens' interests, which is at the yeah, end yeah. of the day, the U.S. government's goal, right, is to look out for its interests and citizens. And, and that's nothing to sneeze at. That is certainly the rule, one of the major roles of government. Um, but I do think it comes down to kind of this unintended consequences, like this question of like, what does that spawn? And so we've talked about this quite a bit with things like, you know, KYC and de-risking and kind of what, what that led to, because there are also very practical realities that have to be considered around businesses and the business need that they have around certain kinds of how they can actually roll out innovation and in what parts of the world they can do that and all these different kinds of things that come into play and the consequences placed upon them for making, you know, missteps. And the lack of permission, the strict liability, we'd say, in a legal regime around some of these questions that lead to, you know, what really at the end of the day are horrible, but also very practical decisions. And so I think that we have the history of knowing and seeing a lot of these unintended consequences around regulations, specifically around emerging technologies and in the banking sector. And it's an opportunity for us to think about what didn't work 
and, and perhaps take a little bit more of an agile approach to this, which is something I know a lot of people in the crypto space are pushing for. Like, not, I don't think there are people certainly who want to see the absence of regulation entirely and to see this very, you know, crypto anarchist kind of vision realized, or they don't have a problem with that. But there are many others, I think, who believe in the potential of crypto for all the reasons that you just said, Matthew, and, and truly believe, as I do, around its potential for inclusion, but understand that there is a necessary I describe this oftentimes as like a half pipe. I use this image a lot in my talks of like the snowboarder half pipe, which is hilarious given the origins of crypto, right? Where, you know, everyone goes down the same pipe, but you can be very creative about how you do that. It provides kind of a foundation so that you know that there is a systematic rigor that's being applied in consideration to some of this innovation in a way that is not going to, at least not directly, you know, screw over people that are not uh, able to influence the creation of the innovation itself. I don't know if it's always just unintended consequences. And I think that, in fact, what we're seeing is deliberate trade-offs. And one way that I, I would consider it is, is compliance maximalism, where we're basically trading off a lot to get uh, a lot of control over what happens, how transactions take place, etc. And those trade-offs around um, inclusion, when they trade off and, and trade away from inclusion, are substantial, right? So the de-risking problem is getting worse and worse. We're, we're moving in the wrong direction. It's not like we're sort of averaging in the right direction. We're actually moving in the wrong direction. Places like the Caribbean, for instance, and Sub-Saharan Africa are being cut out like from the financial system in dramatic ways. And that affects everyone. It affects everyone that we try to serve and work with. It affects our own operations because we have more trouble interacting with financial institutions in the places that we work when we want to deliver humanitarian assistance, things like that. And I think that when you, when you develop a system the way that we have it, uh, the AML CFT sanctions regime, uh, you know, as some would say, it's kind of fine-tuned to generate false positives. And we're not, we're not actually thinking uh, back about, well, it's it's not necessarily that we're not we're not aware of the consequences. It's just that there's a a kind of fixture around wanting to make those trade-offs. And I think honestly, what's exciting uh, about this conversation in particular, and working with people like you, um, Sheila, and the World Economic Forum, is that you know no doubt whether crypto and and these distributed systems scale will, will a lot of that is going to play out in the regulatory space. That's where a lot of these decisions are going to be made on what the, the landscape will look like. I think that what's really exciting is whether we are up against a kind of pivotal moment, like a Bretton Woods type of era where we could generate potentially new types of institutions, new kinds of regulatory approaches, and actually leverage this kind of moment where we don't know exactly what the form of money will be let's say five years from now, we don't know exactly what those intermediaries may or may not look like to come up with a, a system that could be more equitable. And the idea around the, the larger regulatory architecture is really important here. You know, I, I remember I took a class at, at Harvard Law School on global governance. And I remember a piece called Mystery of Global Governance by David Kennedy about how there really is no global governance, right? It's just a bunch of different actors that are putting forth their uh, kind of their agendas and their systems. And when we look at, you know, organizations like the Financial Action Task Force or others, you see different bodies trying to come together to formulate responsible rules uh, for uh, transmission of uh, financial 
transactions or financial services, et cetera. And what we would hope and what you know, I, I hope we can do together is develop a system that is more equitable and that we have more voices from different types of jurisdictions that are maybe not as influential or may not have been as influential in the past. Because I think that if the regulatory um, approach only reinforces what we currently have, we will actually just end up with a crypto-based financial system that replicates a lot of the negative outcomes that you know, we're complaining about. And we don't really want to see that. I don't think anyone who's very interested in uh, crypto innovation and even fintech innovation more broadly wants to see us not move the needle or not increase the perimeter. And I think that we need to think about that a lot more seriously as we move forward. I think it's interesting that we, you know, we could have this, this idea sometimes that regulations create the box in which we're all supposed to operate. And in fact, it can be a source of innovation because you figure out how to deal with that. And I think that maybe speaks to a little bit about what Matthew's talking about, about, okay, this is what we have. KYC is a thing. How do we figure out how to regu- you know, innovate within that framework? So hopefully, because of the fact that crypto has this open protocol framework, it will enable that. But I actually want to segue to a different topic. And both of you guys, it seems, are involved in some way with the Libra work and, and, and Facebook and, and its DM project. Now, you know, some would argue, uh, and I'm, I've been something of a critic of Facebook for some time, that you're just replacing US hegemony for Zuckerberg hegemony. Ultimately, this is a different form of surveillance. This is a different form of control. Unless we have a truly open structure, you know, a public blockchain, then you're just not going to enable that innovation that we that we need to see happening to do some of the stuff that you're talking about, Matthew. So, how do you see Libra Facebook fitting into this? I, I don't expect you to throw the whole system under a bus if you're both yeah. involved with it, but clearly, you know, you're very aware, I'm sure, of of the tensions and concerns people have about this sort of monolithic internet behemoth being, if not the you know, controller of Libra, certainly, you know, the instigator and the, the driver of it. I want to chime in there with a, a nuance to that too. You know, I certainly and many share the concern that a lot of government services have been outsourced to philanthropy, right? So now because there are massive giant foundations, which I won't name, but we all kind of know who we're talking about, that have stepped in in areas like public health, even vaccine distribution, like all these education you know, the government has been enabled to take kind of a back seat. And so it's a similar question, right? So I think that the, the broader theme here is really, you know, what should we make of the transfer of this kind of consolidated power to private players? Whether those players are bound by philanthropic rules to give away money or whatever, they still have, you know, a point of view and an agenda that is not really vetted by any sort of democratic process. The same thing is certainly true of big tech platforms. I'd love to get your thoughts on, on that general trend and theme. A couple of points out front. First is the whole thing about the privatization of finance, the stuff that DM Association has always talked about doing, wholesale been done by the private sector for a long time. I think the difference here, and, and you pointed it out in your lead-in, is Facebook's involvement. And Facebook is massive. And I totally understand the perception of potential systemic risk based solely on Facebook's network scale globally. It's bigger than every country. So once you get over that for a sec, first I'll just be clear, and I know this has been said hundreds of times, but you know th- there is the, it's popular to take a punch at DM when you're taking the punch at Facebook. 
DM is an independent association. I am a board member of DM Association. I would not have joined. This was a puppet for any organization. Like the same will probably be true of Mercy Corps. Um, and the same is true of Kiva for, for you know, why we were interested in joining. I actually look at the benefit of having someone as big as Facebook involved, which is if you want to talk about actually reaching the unbanked and reaching them digitally with financial services, clearly the existing financial sector does not reach them. But if you go to villages, to rural villages, especially go super rural, go to rural Liberia, and they finance and get solar panels, and then they get some light bulbs. The next thing they drop in is their own little micro cell tower, and then they start getting smartphones. So if you want to talk about financial inclusion and access, you're talking obviously digital access, and guess what they get after they get the smartphone? They get WhatsApp and Facebook Messenger. So does that mean that Facebook has the potential to be a major player in the DM and any other ecosystem which they choose to play? Absolutely. But again, back to my earlier point on the regulatory side, I think the tack that DM has taken from the beginning, saying this is what we want to do. We want this to be 100% above board. We're not going to launch this till we have this sorted out. And this involves how do we cater to those who are excluded, but also accommodate the evolution of the existing regulatory standards by where the money is today. I think it's admirable what the team has done. I, I've been honored to be able to ride along, you know, not trying to win any popularity contests, especially in the crypto universe being associated with DM, but do look at it as doing exactly where I started when I started this dialogue with you guys about like, this takes bridging between the public and private sector and DM Association and Facebook and all the other members, big players in the private sector. And I think they have meaningfully engaged and continue to engage with the public sector. And I'm glad to see all of the pushback and all of move movement from the public sector. You know, I don't think we're going to be in a situation where we're codifying the existing financial sector. And I think in some part that will be due to the fact that DM has presented such a potentially big network that it's forced everybody to think about this. The same as Bitcoin, every time the price spikes, it forces people to think about crypto. I think DM has forced regulators to think about, oh, like they're not even launched yet and I wanna think about what this means long-term. And so I'm super pleased. And again, it comes back to like, I think crypto is an expression, but like the regulatory and policy side and making it so that it's fast, cheap and secure to transact with anybody and to, to bring anybody into the sector. I think that's what we actually need. And I look at DM as a vehicle that's gonna drive that hopefully on a global scale. But Alvin, you probably have additional, much smarter thoughts than me usually. No, Matthew, I think, I think what you said is right on. I think I had two points. So one is, I actually think that in that statement I made about reinforcing the existing system and you know, whether or not we're, we're gonna innovate, what I see in DM is a, a meaningful motivation and, and a lot of capability to actually do that, to actually innovate and, and not just reinvent the same exact system. And that's, you know, I would say partly uh, or probably one of the main reasons why Mercy Corps uh, decided to join. And it, I think a lot of the concerns that, you know, Michael and Sheila that you just raised have come up in our own, you know, internal conversations and within the, the humanitarian sector itself. And just to reinforce the point around the association being a kind of consortium, you know, it's not just one entity, it's many entities, and the entities all have their own perspectives. You know, ours don't necessarily align 100% with every single other member, but we see a couple of different things. One is the ability to really design and, or at least start to uh, design and, and reimagine how to achieve financial inclusion with different technological solutions and distributed technology at scale. That just has not taken place, um, you know, at least had not taken place when, when DM had launched. It's very important to understand what, what I think Matthew just mentioned, which is that 
when people talk about disruptive technology and fintech, in a lot of the contexts we work in, there is no disruption because there's no one there to, to provide those services to begin with, right? Banks don't actually serve a lot of the people that we work with to begin with. So what we're really excited about is the potential to actually solve for these problems. This is what we stay up uh, late at night around specific questions. For example, you know, what is going to happen to people's privacy? What is going to happen to people's transaction data, their, their control? You know, how user-centric are the systems going to be? And this is exactly what is being worked out. You know, it happens internally, it happens externally. These are the kinds of things that we are very interested and, and motivated and driven to, to kind of sort. So, so I think like one of the ways to frame this is to think about the power of open source as a, as a driving structure, right? And we've talked at the beginning about how do we empower people at the edges and particularly in this case, the poor. And it's a similar concept to how we think about development and technology. And clearly the, the success of Linux and, and of course the underlying open source ethos of the whole crypto community is that the more you make this thing permissionless, the more empowering it is, the more innovation, the more every, everything else uh, comes from that. So I'd, I'd like to think about this again, if we come back to this big question about like a who's in charge and we were talking about KYC and regulation and we talked about the US uh, having this you know, way too big a footprint on everything. And, and now the beauty of crypto being this potential to actually then empower at the level and, and, and the trade-offs that both of you have talked about, it, how do we still work within the existing system for that? And then we just had a conversation around Facebook and its role in a different system. And, and not to say that is a good or a bad, because both of you made good points about why that could be valuable, but it's about where is the optimal level of decentralizing power, right? It's also the optimal level of, of functionality so that we do protect people against the worst, right? How do we create that hive mind, that empowerment that comes from, from a system that allows people to be their own and be their best? And this can apply outside of poverty alleviation work, but it really, I think, does apply very heavily to it. So I think yeah. both of you, and we, we can close out the conversation now, just a bit of a conversation about what does the system look like to get us to that point? I think that really comes down to some extent to what are the priorities? You know, are, if we're really serious about financial inclusion, we know where to meet, we need to meet people where they are and we know where they are. Like the, the evolution that Matthew described where you get, you know, the grid, you get some aspect of a grid and then you get uh, your phone and then you get your, your chat, you know, your communication a protocol, whatever that might be. In many cases, it is, you know, WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger, but in other parts of the world, it's something else. You know, we can meet people where they are and really provide these financial services as a layer on services that they're already familiar with, comfortable with, and using. And there are definite trade-offs to that, and there's no question about it. And some of those trade-offs do involve an acknowledgement of uh, some degree of centralization, whether it's through you know, government soft power, whether it's through philanthropy, or whether it's through platform, tech platform. On the other hand, you know, we have to kind of make a choice. Is it more important to us to provide this on-ramp, this path to basically uh, financial betterment and, and, and real wealth possible creation to people? Or is it more important uh, in some ways to hold off on that until we can kind of deal with some of the monopolistic realities that are, that, are, you know, that I would argue are, are plaguing a large part of the world? And, and this is the this sort of reality that we live in. And I think it's, it's kind of, everyone's going to have a different point of view on that. And I think where you fall on that is going to say a lot about, you know, your particular priorities and, and how short-term, medium-term and long-term you're thinking about people's lives. Yeah. 
You, you touched on, I have a term for that centralization. I call it minimum viable centralization, which, which is not mine. I forget who said it to me. It might've been Brian over yeah, at I've, Hyperledger. I've heard that it's a, it's, it's a good one. I love who yeah, that it's as a good well, one too. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because outside of all the stuff we're talking about, about centralized power, like the first things individuals do when you give them decentralized stuff is centralize it to some degree. They yeah. write down their password in a notebook, True. then their notebook has all their passwords, or you know, you can play that along. Look, I, I think a couple of things. One is in terms of the multi-parties that need to be involved. So it's easy to think about crypto and then you think of this behemoth private sector entity. And wh whether you're talking about completely permissionless, uh, completely open, you're talking about Bitcoin, you're talking about one that has players like Facebook involved in a consortium like Diem. At the end of the day, that's just one piece of the puzzle. There's the individual, there's the private sector actors, and really importantly, there's a public sector. And I think seeing the movement towards a risk-based approach and, and you're seeing this come out now of being able to think about, you know, you're not seeing a lot of countries implement tiered KYC and differentiated AML schemes, but you're seeing the foundations for those coming, even out of FATA. And, you know, the, the Anti-Money Laundering Act I, I referenced earlier, the one that was buried in the, the Defense Reauthorization Act, that one actually specifically says a risk-based approach should be prioritized to help drive inclusion. Starts to lay that framework. Good to hear, yeah. And so when you're thinking about the decentralization and centralization, I think it's really important to, to know that, look, the, the companies weren't elected or appointed. The public sector side is where the individuals have decided to put the power. And I think it takes all three parties that the individuals are choosing, hopefully in most countries, choosing who will represent them. And those people are putting safeguards on that public or private sector entity. And I think that's why the public-private sector divide has, you know, it's, it's an expression of why it's so important to me and why it's one of the things I'm most excited to see movement on. Because then it becomes a little bit less worrisome. Like the, the whole question about is Facebook going to take over the financial sector because of Diem starts to go away because you realize that in every jurisdiction, Diem is going to have regulations on it. Facebook operating Novi through in WhatsApp will have regulations on it. And those regulations per jurisdiction to some degree will originate from the individuals who it's covering. And that's why I think this multi-party thing that like, if you wanted to sum up why I talk about everybody should be in the formal sector and the formal sector will hopefully evolve to be able to include these new innovations. It all boils down to that. Give them as much control as possible. But remember, they do have a lot of control over the public sector. So if you put the public and private sector together, you've got a lot of the individual's will buried in there. Alpin, why don't you give us the last word and we'll round this out. Sure. Yeah, I mean, when, just coming back down to the individual, you know, this is actually front and center for Mercy Corps, which is that all of our work is intended to identify the needs of uh, vulnerable populations at the level that, you know, they operate. So when we engage in partnerships like DM or others, including with other platforms that are also leveraging blockchain, you know, what we're thinking about first and foremost is how do we provide these tools to people at that level so that they can be involved in the design, that these systems that are emerging actually have vulnerable people at the center of the design as opposed to at the periphery as an afterthought. And I wouldn't say that there will be one you know, platform that will rule them all. If anything, I mean, what I'm very thankful for with the advent of Bitcoin is the ability to uh, replicate, to fork, to um, amplify the innovation in different ways because it is open source. And we expect and hope to see a lot more sophistication around what people can do and how people can access these technologies with even maybe less 
you know, software expertise or smart contract coding or no code applications so that people that we work with actually can, can get more involved in, in designing some of these applications. Because ultimately, the, the value add here, whether it's with DeFi or what I consider like, we should probably be expanding to DeFi and include real estate and insurance, things like that, is that these are tools that allow people to create new kinds of financial institutions at that kind of person-to-person or community scale. You know, I think we have the potential to see that actually take place over the next few years. I think the, the question of whether this will take place within the existing system or whether we will see people form different kinds of systems is being foreshadowed already a little bit, which is that it's really hard now for us to undo the ability of people to create different kinds of transaction systems or platforms when you have these kind of internet-based accounts. I think it comes down to, you know, who has network effects, what kind of curation is going to be possible that will make it as easy as possible for people to participate and transact with people that they want to. You know, we're, we're seeing a lot of innovation take place before our eyes. For instance, we, you know, we didn't even get into CBDCs here, but there's a whole lot of questions around the design for CBDCs. What could that look like? What might that look like? Across the board, I think what we're going to see is more innovation. What we're not seeing necessarily is the use of innovation in the regulatory space to deal with the kinds of questions that, that Matthew just raised, which is that you know, we have things like KYC, we have things like AML, et cetera. You know, some of these technologies actually allow us to do it in a better way that don't crowd out transactions, that don't uh, encourage de-risking. The sooner regulators start to learn and think about and, and, and kind of engage on how they can utilize these technologies, the sooner we'll have kind of a platform to actually have responsible innovation at the hands of, of, of the people that we're talking about. Okay, great. Well, we're going to have to wrap it up there. I just want to say thank you to you both, Alpensheth and Matthew Davey. This is a topic that I think has inspired a lot of people to get into this space. And the fact that, you know, as I said at the beginning, you're both working on practical solutions. It really doesn't matter how we get there, but how do we actually achieve to this goal of bringing more people in who deserve to be in the system? And it's, it's, it's wonderful to see two people dedicating their careers to that effort and to have such sharp insights into how it plays. So we could have gone a lot longer, uh, lots to talk about. Thank you very, very much for your time. And we'll look forward to catching up with you some other time. Sheila Warren, as always, was a pleasure. Thank you so much. And to all of you, please tune in again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye-bye. Bye, everyone. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined, Episode 10. Today's show featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, Matthew Davey, and Alpin Sheff. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was edited by Michelle Musell, produced, announced, and with additional editing by Adam B. Levine. Do you have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. <laughs>